of John's Gospel, the 11th chapter. John chapter 11, we'll be taking up the word in verse 45 in reading through to the end of the chapter. Let's stand together once more for the reading of God's word. Now many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer openly walked among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Thus far, the word of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we rejoice that you have spoken to us in your word. You have spoken in your Son. Uh, the word that you have spoken, you make effectual and powerful within us by uh, the working of the person of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that as we are assembled to continue in worship, that you would bless us under the word, that you bless us through the word, and that by the Holy Spirit, the word would be sounded forth with clarity and a demonstration of power, and that it would have an effect within each one of us. Lord God, we pray that you would magnify the name of your Son before all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Throughout the chapter of uh, John 11, uh, the setting has been Bethany. The marvelous event that has taken place sets midway between the Feast of the Tabernacles, where we were a couple chapters ago, and the Feast of the Passover. The death and resurrection of Lazarus serves as a prelude to Christ's own death and resurrection. In verse 45, John records one response to Jesus' Raising Lazarus, a four-day dead man, he says that many believed. Many believed. John says that they were those who had come to Mary, which indicates that many of those who came out to Mary and Martha's household out to comfort them uh, must have been part of Mary's social circle. We don't know why that is, but it's Mary particularly that they've come out to. Now, John records that many believe, but... He doesn't really comment on the quality of this faith. We've seen in John's Gospel that there's a number of types of faith. Back in John 2, Jesus was working miracles, and we saw that there were those who believed in Jesus. They believed in him as a miracle worker, as someone who was truly performing miracles, though how far their understanding was, went was, not, uh, was limited. We need to understand that saving faith, again, we're thinking of the purpose of John in writing, saving faith believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, we have life in his name. But there was another group present there after the resurrection of Lazarus, verse 46, we find a very sharp contrast. They have just witnessed Jesus' greatest miracle, the raising of a four-day dead man. But they, taking this all in, they're of a different mind. There's this group there that um, 
are mindful that the religious elite are looking for Jesus. You remember that Jesus was near the Jordan in the area where John had been baptizing when Mary and Martha send for him. Uh, He is withdrawn from Jerusalem because of the controversy before and the determination of the religious leaders to arrest him, to put him to death. You remember they, they even took up stones at one occasion to stone him. So it is well known that there are those in the religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, the elders, the priests, the Pharisees, the the, uh, Sadducees, that they are determined to kill Jesus. And so there are those, well, children, you know what we could call them? Tattletales. What do they do? They've seen this. They take it all in. Uh, They're not convicted. They're not converted. They're not moved in in a positive sense. They're moved rather to rush off to the Pharisees. Some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them, the things that Jesus did. Up to this point, we've seen multiple times that those who hear Jesus' words, who see his deeds and actions, there's a result. There's there's a division amongst the people as a response to what Jesus is doing and what he is teaching, what he is preaching. The fallout from Lazarus walking free from the bonds of death were no different as mighty of a miracle as this was, there were still those who were against Jesus, and there were still those who were believing. It's no different today. People hear the gospel, they hear the truth about Christ, and yet they respond into one of those two groups. There's those who believe, having been effectually called by the working of the Holy Spirit, and there are those who go on in unbelief, rebellion, and turn it away from the living God. It's interesting just think about this, the miracle, the nature of this miracle, uh, that those present, that the tomb is open, that the stench of death was there. They are, they're present, and they see this mighty miracle where Jesus speaks but a word, and Lazarus is raised. Uh, corruption is made incorrupt. He is restored to life, and he comes staggering out, still bound in the grave clothes, and they're unmoved. Now you remember earlier on in John, and you find it in the other Gospels, that the religious leaders, you know, as they're challenging Jesus, they want to know who sent him, who is he, what's his authority. And they, they say, give us a sign. And what did Jesus say in response to that? He says, a wicked and perverse generation looks for a sign. Well, nonetheless, God has just given them a most remarkable sign, a most stunning sign. Here is proof positive that Jesus is the Christ. He is the prophet that Moses foretold, that God would raise up from their midst one who would be greater than he, one who indeed would be God, come in the flesh, come into the world, the one who the prophets foretold would save sinners, even Isaiah, who we will soon see as we make our way up to the 53rd chapter, one who would die, that he might save his people from their sin. What's the response? They want to put him to death. As you listen today, I would ask you to search your heart and ask, which group am I in? And indeed, does my life, the way I live my life, reflect that I am in the group that I think I am? Do I truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and is he my Savior? We use four main headings. The counsel to kill, the apostle explains, or his explanation, Um, waiting for his hour to die, and then the hour approaches. We'll spend the bulk of our time in this first point, the counsel to kill, verses 47 through 50. The Pharisees, a little bit of background on them, they're a political party uh, made up mostly of the scribes, teachers, and then the elders of the people. Uh, The the Pharisees, they're not a court. Uh, They're just a political party. They don't have authority of a court, or uh, as some of the men individually or collectively uh, will have, but they don't have authority. They cannot take judicial action. And so John tells us that the chief priests, in verse 47, and the Pharisees gathered a council. A council is convened. This would be the Sanhedrin is called together. And some of the Pharisees... And the chief priest certainly would have been part of this Sanhedrin, this ruling body. So a little bit of background about the Sanhedrin. They're made up of 70 members. Some have suggested 71 because there were two chief priests, and we'll come to why in just a moment. And so 70 plus the one additional high priest. 
Now, the Roman government had appointed the Sanhedrin to oversee the internal affairs of the nation of Israel. Uh, They're the dominant force. They're the mighty empire that has uh, captured many lands and subdued them underneath them. And in each of those areas, they would set up uh, um, a government that would answer to them, uh, that would manage the internal affairs. And in Israel, amongst the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin was that governing body appointed by the Roman government. So the Sanhedrin was a judicial court. They, they had a power to uh, adjudicate matters and render decisions to, to give forth justice. They were also a legislative body. That is to mean, children, that they made laws and then saw to it that the laws were forced. And thus, as we've seen earlier in John's Gospel, there were soldiers assigned. It wasn't that they were just a, uh, a court without power. They had soldiers uh, that could go forth and do their will. And then high priest, or the chief priest, he's called back and forth the two different uh, names, same thing. He was like the chief executive. Um, in our Presbyterian government, we have a moderator of the presbytery. In our local session of elders, as the minister, I'm the moderator. And so you think of the chief priest as being the moderator or the president over this assembly uh, that is known as the Sanhedrin. Now there was another political party, we've commented upon them, and I gave you something a little humorous so that you'd remember something about them. But the Sadducees, some of your children remember what I said. They were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So this is another political party. They're mostly priests. The Sadducees was made up mostly of priests, whereas the Pharisees was mostly made up of scribes. The Sanhedrin then was composed of priests and scribes. Elders of the people, elders from the 12 tribes, the prominent men from each of the 12 tribes of Jacob. Anyway, this then is the council that the chief priests and the Pharisees came back to gather together. A council of these, made up of these men, but two political parties uh, who are usually at war with each other. But during this phase, during this period of time, they're very united because they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. They hate the Son of God who has come into the world to save sinners. So the council gathered and they're perplexed. John records in verse 47, the chief priests and the the Pharisees gathered a council and they said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. The nature of the question, what shall we do? uh, It has an an element of frustration in it. Uh, we, We could rightly translate it. What are we accomplishing They've made a determination to do away with Jesus and you know, delay and action, you know, Jesus eluding them, disappearing. You know, the real question is, you know, what are we accomplishing? Yeah, we've not accomplished anything. And now this Jesus has just done a mighty miracle, the, the most mighty of all. And what do we accomplish? Well, the answer is very obvious. Nothing. They've not accomplished anything. Remember, they have been empowered to oversee the nation, to govern it on behalf and underneath the Romans. Now, indeed, the Sanhedrin is a powerful assembly. And yet, with all their power, they could not refute the miracles that Jesus was accomplishing. We notice even in the text, there at the end of verse 47, they they acknowledge it. For this man works many signs. He's not a charlatan. He's not a magician. There's no doubt that the signs that he's doing are mighty miracles and mighty signs. Indeed, the reality is the people are going out to Jesus. The people are talking about him. Everywhere they're talking about him. And there's, there's a movement of the people are gravitating towards Jesus for a host of reasons. You know, just like some uh, pop star will come into town and people will, you know, for a moment, you know, run after them, follow them because we're fickle. But the people nonetheless at this time are going out. And it's a source of extreme humiliation for this uh, ruling body. That they're unable to do it. With all of their collective knowledge, they cannot do anything. Now remember, just a few months before this, and, and Jesus withdrew because of the controversy at that point, there was the man who had been born, who was born blind for 38 years, had been blind. No, I'm sorry, I'm mixing the other guy from Bethsaida. He's, he's been blind from his birth. There's this man, and Jesus has given him his sight. That was a mighty miracle. People are still talking about that. We saw that earlier in this chapter. And that was a source of great humiliation for these Jewish leaders. Because remember, with all their collective knowledge, they weren't able to answer what this was about. They even uh, called this man who had been 
a beggar throughout his life, you know, limited education. He spent his life begging, and yet this man who's been given new life by the Holy Spirit and has faith and reason answers him. Turn back a page or two to John chapter 9, verse 31. In this controversy he's having with his ruling body, they said, uh, you know, they're against Jesus. They want to know, what does he think? What's your answer? They're, they're looking to incriminate him. And of course, the outcome is we know they put him out of the synagogue. But in verse 31, this man, this blind man, this man who's been begging all his life, what does he say? He, we, we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see the reason, the logic, the rationale of this, this ordinary common man who has answered all the educated men that sit in the Sanhedrin that are these ruling members. They've been challenged and shut their mouth. This man has answered wisely. And of course, the only answer they have is to attack that man. They can't answer his argument. There is no answer to that argument. So they attack him. They excommunicate him. They put him out of the synagogue. And so here the Sanhedrin is acknowledging that Jesus is doing many signs. There's nothing they can do about it. What are they accomplishing? They're not accomplishing anything. The evidence is powerful that Jesus is no mere man. He has claimed to be the Son of God. He has claimed to be sent from the Father. He has claimed time and again that he only does what he sees the Father doing. He only says what he hears the Father saying. Do they step back? Do they, they pause and consider that there might be some validity to these claims? Do they consider that maybe they've misunderstood things? No. As we would say today, they double down. They double down and they go after him. Goes, John goes on to expose that it was, the, the problem was that these leaders uh, were filled with fear. Verse 48, they continue to speak. For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now to understand that we need to remember the Sanhedrin has been set up by the Romans. They're supposed to govern the nation. They're supposed to keep things under control. And if they do not, they're going to answer to the Romans. You know, if the people, you know, start uh, following after man, they're not following the leadership of the Sanhedrin. If they follow, they're following a zealot, and this has happened, there were zealots that have come and stirred up the people and led people off in insurrections, the Sanhedrin wasn't doing their job. And, and if they did, then they would have had to seize that man and get rid of him. And that's what's in their mind. They see Jesus as a threat. But he's not a zealot. He's not stirring up the crowds. He's not leading men to revolt and riots and to overthrow the government. Uh, we know that that was a desire of the people. And so the, these, these rulers are fearful that if they don't do something, everybody is going to believe in him. And the result will be that the Romans will come and take away, notice it's both our place, their position, their position of power and of authority and of prestige and accumulation of wealth and all that goes with that. They'll take that away and they'll take away the nation from us. It's very important to understand that that's what the context is. We could say Jesus is messing with their lives. Isn't that what happens when we hear the gospel? Some of you uh, grew up apart from the church and apart from Christ, and there was a point where you heard the gospel, and it, it kind of was poking at your life and the way you were living your life. It was agitating and upsetting because truth was entering in. That's what's happening with these men. Jesus is messing with their, their system of government, their power, their position, their authority. They've got a very workable relationship with the Roman government. Things are pretty sweet for them. They like how things are running. And they're at risk of having Jesus ruin it all. This Jesus, the people are following him. Even in our day, there are those who hear the gospel, and by God's grace, they follow Jesus. But there are still those, often in positions of power and authority, who are agitated and irritated at Christ and his good news. We, we are mindful of the persecution that is uh, ratcheting up in China 
And we can think of Islamic nations where uh, the persecution is against God's people because who's at, who's at the head of the church? It's Christ. Even if these men were opposed to Christ, it is so today that men are opposed to Christ. They fear him. They fear that he will upset their system, their lives, their power, their structure. And indeed he does because no king but Jesus. No loyalties but to him. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. There's no room for the government. I've just finished reading on my study retreat a a book about the second um, century of the church. And that was one of the great uh, features. There's a lot of persecution. The Roman government, the same Roman government in the next century, they're still being bothered by these Christ followers. Because they won't worship all the gods that the Roman Empire does. They're single-minded. They worship one God. And so they reject God's people because ultimately they reject Christ, which is what Jesus said, that if the world hates me, they will hate you. And if the world has persecuted me, they will, the world will persecute you as well. Jesus disrupts the normal order. He upsets the status quo. If indeed we would follow Jesus, we should expect that the world will be against us. But ultimately, what does Jesus do? He brings peace. He brings peace with the one that matters most. He brings us to his Father. He brings us to God that we as sinners can have peace with God. We're brought out from being rebellious and wicked and unwashed, full of iniquity. He redeems us by his blood and sets our lives aright. It's interesting how uh, the opposition to Paul, particularly in the book of Acts, you know, that the accusation was these men have come, they've turned the world upside down. But in reality, what does Jesus do? He turns the world, he turns our lives right side up. He's restored us to the way things were in the garden to begin with. And we have communion and fellowship with our God. Now, this fear that these, uh, these leaders have, it's to be well-founded. There's a period, of, you know, that Malachi is the last prophet, and he speaks of one who will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And then there's 400 years of silence before John arises, and indeed the fulfillment of the prophecy, one who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. We saw that earlier here in John's Gospel. And there was a 300-year period uh, where the Jews are back in the land, uh, that we know as Palestine or Israel. They're back in the land, but there's constantly this t- overturning of power. Who's in control? Uh, various uh, factions have ruled over them, even factions within uh, the Jews that they would seek to lead the nation in one direction or another. And so there's been a tremendous amount of power struggle. And that's one of the things these men are fearful of. They, they'd like things to stay stable. And indeed, you know, when there's unrest and violence and invading armies and so forth, there is a very real danger of the nation being taken away. It has happened before as they were carried away into captivity because of their rebellion. But this 300-year period before, there was the Maccabean Wars, there were internal civil strife and civil wars. And then many times they were not free to worship at the temple. And that was one of the things they struggled with is to retain control of the temple and be able to worship there. So the Sanhedrin's pretty happy with the way things are. They like to keep the peace and the stability. Fundamentally, we can say they are afraid. Verse 38, hear it again. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's fear speaking. Then, verse 49, enter Caiaphas. We know from the Jewish historian Josephus, this is Joseph Caiaphas. Uh, That is his full name. He's the high priest. Now, notice back in verse 47, then the chief priest, plural. And we know that the system set up under Moses, there was one chief priest, there was a high priest, it was Aaron's and then his oldest son and down through the subsequent generations that the oldest son in that line of Aaron was to be the chief priest. That was God's appointment of the succession there. But at the time that uh, they're in here, there's two chief priests. There's been the one who by rights is the chief priest, according to God's appointment. And then there's this Caiaphas. Uh, 
Caiaphas has been appointed by the Romans. In particular, Caiaphas was appointed by Valerius Gratius, who was the Roman prefect. Caiaphas' father-in-law, Annas, who we hear about in the book of Acts and also in the Gospels, uh, he had been appointed to be the chief priest, and he served from the year of our Lord 6 through 15. And now we're here about A.D. 30, uh, in this point in John. Uh, but Annas' influence lingered long after he was out of power. And consider, you know, his son-in-law is now the high priest, so you can imagine that he still has a lot of influence. Caiaphas served all the way to A.D. 36, He was one of the men who served the longest in that position. What's interesting, he was removed at the same time that the Roman government removed Pontius Pilate from being the ruler over the realm, the realm known as Palestine. Now, John here tells us that he was, uh, in verse 49, Caiaphas being high priest that year. And I've just told you that he was high priest for a number of years, over two decades. John's not saying that year, that year alone. John is using uh, that phrase to speak of this, that momentous year, that year of the passion of Christ, that year when Christ was persecuted. And indeed that year when this body would take Jesus before Pilate and demand that he be put to death. Caiaphas was high priest of that year. So Caiaphas speaks up as the chief priest, verse 49. Look at the end of it. He says, you know nothing at all. Again, the the sense of it is, you don't know what you're talking about. They don't know what. They say, you know, what are we doing? What are we accomplishing? Nothing. He says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have any solutions. And so he's going to offer one. He continues to speak, and John records his words. And what we have here is in John's gospel, as we've seen before, irony. This is powerful irony on two levels. So John records the words that Caiaphas speaks. He goes on, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Those are the words that Caiaphas speaks. Again, they're over the people. They fear that the Romans will take away their position. And thus he says, it's expedient for us. It's a Sanhedrin. It's expedient for us. But also it's better for the people than that there should be upheaval and turmoil and that the Romans who have the force and the might should squash us or should disperse us to other places in the Roman Empire. And you can see what his priorities are. He's thinking about himself first. He's thinking about the others who are the elite at the top of this power structure. That's always the way it is with wicked men. It's no different in our day. But also he says that he's concerned to save the nation. That is, as I said, that the Romans should hit the nation with a heavy blow militarily. And so he says it's best that one man, it's expedient that one man should die. He's speaking of Jesus. They've already many times said, you know, we, we, you deserve to die. You, you blaspheme. You, you claim to be God. You claim to be the Son of God. And they want to destroy him. But now this has moved from that matter, which they're very wrong about. This has moved to the matter, this, this man is a political threat. Why? Because so many have been affected by the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's reasonable. A four-day dead man has been raised from the dead. It will affect the people. The word will travel. And we shouldn't even think that it's just limited to Israel. As ships pull out of port, they go to other places. And they said, man, something most remarkable happened in the place I just came from. Word is going to spread. And they're concerned about this. And so... Caiaphas says, we need to put this man to death. Much like if they had a a zealot who was leading a band of rebels, causing turmoil, political unrest, uh, they would put him to death. But for Caiaphas, he utters these words, and it's purely a political statement. Here's the irony. Listen to his words again, and think how we hear these words as those who have the fullness of the New Testament and hold account of what Jesus came to accomplish. He says, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. What do you hear there? He actually uses uh, words associated with a sacrifice. 
He's saying we need to sacrifice this one man for our sakes and the for the sakes of all. He's not saying that because he believes Jesus is the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sins of the world. But that is true. That is the irony. He says that. He sees Jesus as the problem. But the real problem is uh, spiritual. And he's concerned about political solutions. That's the, the Sanhedrin's always been looking for political solutions. And right now the political solution is Jesus needs to die. And then things can go back to normal. It's beyond his comprehension that the real problem for men is spiritual. Isn't that any different today? The people that we associate with, people that are around us, uh, there's a tremendous amount of concern, no matter which side of the issues you're on, about uh, the political nature in our nation. You know, will we continue to tear ourselves apart? And people are looking for political solutions. They're looking for somebody to rise up and solve the dilemma. Remember what we just heard from Isaiah. You know, these, these men who put themselves forward, God says, I just exhale on them. And, and they're like stubble, they're consumed, and they're blown away. And yet in our day, we have those who are looking to something like a Caiaphas and a Sanhedrin to solve our problems, to resolve our dilemmas. My friends, just as it was then, the problem today is spiritual. We need a Redeemer. We need to be rescued from our sin and iniquity. And that was the problem for Caiaphas and those who served with him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two political parties. The problem is man's heart. That's where the problem lies. Remember that when you're hearing the headlines and uh, the the pundits are trying to pull you one way or another. Remember the problem is not Washington, D.C. The problem is the human heart. We're sinners. We're desperately wicked. And we need to be rescued But sinful men do not like to hear a message of God's grace. Jesus Christ comes offering free grace. It's a humbling message. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. You're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. You're a sinner and there's hope in only one. You must humble yourself before the Lord your God and He will lift you up. You need to come humbly with brokenness and contrition to the Lord God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is offensive to the sin part. It always has been. It was then. It has been through the generations. It is now. Many governments have taken the same position as Caiaphas. I mentioned the second century. Down through history, in various places, even unto our day, people see the Christians... They're the problem. They're, they're out of step. They live differently. Uh, their lifestyles are different. Uh, the way they worship is different. The fact that they uh, are so committed to one God and one God only, that's just not in keeping with the way our society functions. So we need to be rid of them. And so it's no surprise that the church is persecuted. Jesus was crucified, wasn't he? He did die for the people. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. And yet what happened? Here's the irony. The Romans came and they took away their place, the Sanhedrin's place, and they took away the nation. Many died. Many were scattered and dispersed, those who survived throughout the breadth of the Roman Empire. The very thing that they were seeking a political solution with putting Christ to death, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ And the very thing they feared came to pass. There's the irony. The nation was no more. Some application before we move on to the second point. In our day, there are Caiaphases who think that if the Christian church was destroyed, yes, even Christians to death, then our problems will be solved. How many emperors have tried that down through the generations? And where are those emperors? Where are those empires? Where are those nations who have persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? They are gone, my friends. The church is here because Jesus has said, I will build my church and the very gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oh, the irony that wicked men, when they think that they can quash out what God is doing, that they would shake their fist at the Almighty and think that they can prevail. But God laughs at them, Psalm 2. He holds them in derision because he says, I have set my king in Zion. 
Christ is king over the nations. The Father has given to his Son the nations to rule over them, and he has given them a, him a rod of iron. That is, he, as is necessary, he can break them like a potter would break pottery vessels with a rod of iron. My dear sisters and brothers, do not lose sight of this. The very gates of hell shall not prevail against the Lord's doing and his church. The church is here thousands of years later. And it will be here on to the end and on into eternity forevermore. God is doing this because God preserves us. He is with us. As he said, even to the end of the age. How is he with us? He has given us the person of the Holy Spirit. Blessed be the name of our God. Well, secondly, and more briefly, John explains this. Because notice what John says. Concerning Caiaphas, now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, this may be a little complicated. I don't want you to think it is. Um, This is the irony in Caiaphas' words. He's thinking of a political solution. He speaks out of his own will. He's not a prophet of God who God has appeared to in a dream or spoken to him and says, go tell the people thus says the Lord. And yet God uses this unbelieving man to speak the truth. It's not like Balaam's ass, where God just used Balaam's ass as a mouthpiece. Caiaphas voices his own opinions. The words that come out of his mouth, they come from his heart, and yet what he is speaking is also what God is speaking. It is the truth of God. They're both speaking, but they're not saying the same thing. Caiaphas, as we've seen, is it's a political solution. He wants Jesus to die instead of the leaders. He said Jesus should die for the people lest they perish physically. As a nation, God is speaking. And even as Caiaphas uses sacrificial language, indeed God has appointed his son to be the substitute for our, for us, to die in our place. And indeed God sent his son into the world to die in our place, to die for the people that we should not perish forevermore. This was God's plan, that Jesus would do more than just save his people from physical death at the hands of the Roman Someone was going to die. That was the reality. The nation or Jesus. And indeed Jesus would die in the place of others. And since Jesus would die, his people will live. Indeed there is a substitutionary and a sacrificial atonement. Caiaphas, he's thinking only of political expediency. John says God has a different purpose. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sins of the world. Verse 52 He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not that for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Do you hear the echoes of Joseph's story? He speaks to his brother after their father is gone. He said, what you did to me, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, they're going to put Jesus to death. They mean it for evil. God meant it for good. That Jesus should die for the people, that he should die in the place of his people. And in more than just preserving the nation of Israel, rather, it's, it's much grander scope, much greater, that he should gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Yes, that includes Jews of the dispersion that are living out and about throughout the Roman Empire. But God has something much greater. He's been revealing it through the prophets, including the psalmist, that he is going to gather a people from every tribe, and every tongue, and every nation. What did God promise Abraham? Through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's the prophecy of Caiaphas, though he does not, he has no idea how true what he has said is, but God does, and it's what God is doing. God will gather to himself a people. The promise that he made to Abraham will be fulfilled. People will be gathered out of darkness and brought to the light of the world. People will be gathered out of the nations and brought into the church, into the household of faith. And ultimately they will be gathered out of this world into the world that is to come when Jesus comes again and creates a new heavens and a new earth. And it all depends upon what Christ, in our account here where we're at, was about to go and do. Look back at chapter 10, verse 16. This is what Jesus said in his great good shepherd discourse. He says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also must I bring. 
and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. See, this is all coming together. This is what God is doing. Caiaphas has one agenda. It's very short-sighted. It's very limited in scope. He thinks that this moment, Jesus should die rather than he should die. Jesus should die so that there won't be unrest at the hands of, and the people suffer at the hands of the Romans. But God's agenda is much grander. In the words of this prophecy, God is speaking of the very reason why Jesus came. Because the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into the world. That those who believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is what Jesus spoke of, as we saw in his Good Shepherd declaration earlier in that account. You remember, he says, The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died in our place, he is our substitute. Before we go on, some application. Men have agendas. We see it in our day. Perhaps we don't even understand the agendas that are being pushed, but men have agendas, and they're pushing them forward. My friends, brothers and sisters, find great comfort in this. God's agenda is overall. Whatever men are doing, it, is, it serves under the authority and the decree of God. His plan will be accomplished, and he works all, all, all things together for good to those that he loves that he's called according to his purpose. So, my dear friends, even as evil men are still bad actors in the world today, God is above them all. These evil actors, they acted evilly of their own free will, and yet God had decreed what happened. And what happened was the greatest salvation of all. God is in control. We do not need to fear. Thirdly, we see that Jesus was waiting for his hour. Remember, we've had uh, discussions about time, settings of time in John's gospel, and that John, when he refers to Christ's crucifixion, and he talks about his hour. Jesus says, my hour has not come. He's talking about that time, and we're, you're going to see in a moment, we're on the threshold of that. Jesus is waiting for that time. Verse 53, from then on, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Caiaphas carried the day in the Sanhedrin that day. The council was with him. The matter was settled, and Jesus was going to die. For them, the sooner the better. There would be no more need, there would be no more need for excitement from the people to cause the wrath of the Romans to fall upon them. Now, the word of mouth traveled messages. Today, people send messages lickety-split with their phones. But you know, the word of mouth makes a message go forth quickly. That What the Sanhedrin decided pretty quickly was dispersed out through the city and what had made its way to Bethany. And so, Jesus leaves. John says, therefore... Jesus withdrew. Therefore, Jesus no longer appeared in the public. He, he went away to a remote wilderness region which, where there are not a lot of people, very little traffic, because it was not yet his hour. There were about two months before the feast of the Passover. It will be then that Jesus dies. He will die at the Passover, on the day of the Passover. And he will die not by being stoned. He will be hung upon a tree. For cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And Jesus was to be cursed for us. Cursed by God for us, for our salvation. And as Jesus said, if I be lifted up, he's going to be lifted up on a Roman cross, that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Jesus would die as the Passover, as the one who fulfills all that the Passover appointed to all the way back from when it was instituted under Moses and the keeping of it year by year by year, he, that points to Christ. He is that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was, it's Jesus' blood that sends the death angel on to another house, that we come under the blood of Christ and we live. We've seen many times now that when evil men are determined to destroy Jesus, they could not. Sometimes John just records it, and we're like, but John, how? Uh, did he disappear? Uh, was he invisible? You know, because Jesus just slipped away. He just, they wanted to seize him. They're about to seize him. They're about to stone him, and he's just gone. Because it's not until the appointed time and in the appointed way that Jesus will die. 
We're going to see more of this going forward. How all of the events that unfold over the next several chapters, the fulfillment of all these prophecies that were foretold by God through his prophets through many hundreds of years, will all come to pass exactly as God has said that they would. My friends, let us be comforted in this. God not only holds each of you in his hand, he holds all your days and the events of your days in his hand as well. It's the marvelous doctrine of providence. God is sovereign. What comes to pass will because God decreed it. I'm troubled. I'll tell you that I'm troubled when I hear, well, I guess God just allowed it. No, it happened because God decreed it. We don't need to soften the reality that God just kind of is like, I'm just going to allow it. God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. That's the nature of his sovereignty. And God has decreed that his son will die on the Passover, on a cross, lifted up before heaven and earth for his people. He will be the one that spans heaven and earth, that he might bring the wrath of God down, satisfying the wrath of God, that he might then redeem unto himself a people, that he might take us home to glory, even bringing us to his Father before we even go home. And finally, the, four, the hour approaches. Verse 55. Notice 54 said that he withdrew for about two months from the Passover. Verse 55, boom, we're a week before. Just one verse transition, we go from two months before to about one week before. And the Passover, the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem. It's up because it's uphill, up before the Passover to purify themselves. They went up with a purpose and attention to become ceremonial clean that they could participate in the Passover. And what's happened? They come into the city. They, those pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover, they sought Jesus, and they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Interesting way to put the question. Their their assumption is, with a threat of death upon him, he won't show up. But Jesus is no mere man. He has come into the world for this very purpose. And so the people are filled with a question. They've heard of the sentence of death. And so they ponder. Remember, these people are fickled. Many were told believed. These people will shout Hosanna at the beginning of a week, and they'll be shouting crucify him at the end of that same week. Back in John six fourteen and 15, after the feeding of the 5,000, the five loaves and two fish, they wanted to seize him and take and make him their king. And at the end of the week that's now before us, we find that Christ has been crucified. The people... Full of uh, the, the religious leader, the chief priests, the Pharisees, full of fear, also in still of fear. Verse 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. There's even an ominous aspect of that. If you know and you don't say anything, something might happen to you. So we've come, just like that. Chapter 11, we come to the threshold of the last week. Verses 12 through 19 will document what takes place in that week of all weeks. A week we call the Passion Week. We pivot from the ministry of Jesus culminating in Bethany with the resurrection of Lazarus. We pivot then into the week of Passion as Jesus goes to accomplish his greatest work of all. The resurrection of Lazarus pictures that. I'm going to sort of quote from, I'm definitely being informed by Alfred Edersheim. He's an old, he's not really a commentator, but he's written a, more of kind of a history book filled with uh, uh, sociology and anthropology and just a lot of stuff about the Jewish people. He's a believer, and this is what he says. At times I'll be quoting. Concerning this point where we're at, the raising of Lazarus is the highest point in the ministry of Jesus. It is a climax in a history where all is miraculous, the person, the life, the words, the work. Concerning Jesus, we have the fullest evidence of his deity and humanity. We look at those who witness the resurrection, and we have evidence of faith and unbelief. From this height, where we're at right now, from this height, the two ways finally meet in part, those who believe and those who are determined to destroy 
From this height, we look and we see the resolution of the Sanhedrin that Jesus would die, but also the resurrection of Lazarus. We have in this our first clear look forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the raising of Lazarus was a foreshadowing. From this height, we can also see the church gathered at Jesus' empty tomb. Jesus' empty tombs, tomb, where the words of Jesus' comfort, the comforting words he spoke to Martha, will get their full meaning. What did he tell her? I am the resurrection and the life. They will get their full meaning as the church gathers at the empty tomb. Death is defeated, and resurrection and life will flow from Jesus to all believe, who believe. We're here in God's word. From this height, what do you see? Do you see with eyes of faith the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners? By faith, do you look to him as your Savior? That's the great question. Let us pray. Almighty God, we rejoice that you have revealed your Son to be who he is, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, who came into the world to save sinners. Father, we Thank you for the blessings we've received as we've made our way through about half of the book of John with the ministry of Christ, his preaching, his teaching, his miracles. Father, we, we are greatly comforted and encouraged to see the tenderness with which he is engaged, um, downcast and broken in uh, sinful people. Uh, we are comforted to see uh, the truth that he has declared and how he reveals himself even though there were those in opposition to him. And Father, we rejoice to know that he went to the cross and as the Lamb of God, he laid down his life for his people that we might live. Lord, we bless you and praise you on this Lord's day as we remember that he came forth victorious but it was not possible that the grave should hold him. Even now, he rules and reigns from on high at your right hand. Bless us, Lord, to walk in the fullness of this gospel, walking forward with eyes of faith and not eyes of the flesh. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.